Introducing True Crime PI, an investigative bi-weekly podcast that explores missing and unidentified cold cases from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Welcome to True Crime PI. Name is case UP9891, Saginaw, Michigan, October 8th, 1988. Sometimes it feels like a case chooses me, and this one felt like that from the very beginning. The first time I read about Saginaw John Doe's case was on the dnasolves.com website, and the minute I saw his face, I knew I had to tell his story. The forensic sketches of Saginaw John Doe and the facial reconstruction provided by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, spoke to me. His eyes drew me in and made me wonder what he was like as a baby, a child, and a middle schooler. I don't know where this John Doe was born, but I do know that he died in Saginaw, Michigan, on Saturday, October 8, 1988. When he woke up that morning, I can't imagine that he had any idea that it would be the last time he would get dressed and eat breakfast. I am sure he was unaware that before the next sunrise, his short life would be snuffed out by a shotgun shell in an apartment house on Carroll Street in the northeastern part of the city, and that his identity would remain a mystery for the next 34 years. I searched high and low, but was unable to find a single article discussing a homicide in the 400 block of Carroll Street on October 8, 1988. I did find the following blurb from the Associated Press in the Herald Palladium, printed on Wednesday, October 12, 1988, that read, quote, Saginaw Homicide. Saginaw, Michigan. An early morning fight, Tuesday, left one man dead and another hospitalized. The third homicide in the city in four days. Like I said, it was a blurb, and based on the location and the timeline, I can only assume that one of the three homicides mentioned was this John Doe. Today, when a major crime or otherwise noteworthy event occurs in Saginaw, the police department issues a press release and posts a copy on their Facebook page. On February 25, 2021, the Saginaw Police Department released a press release explaining that they were partnering with Othram and DNA Solves to identify Saginaw John Doe. As expected, the press release sparked a few newspaper articles and some local television coverage. You can find links to these resources in my show notes. But prior to this release, there wasn't much that I could find about this case. A NamUs and a National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's file and a post on a Facebook page called Missing in Michigan. That was really about it. As always, I wanted to know more about this case, so I contacted the Saginaw Police Department. Lieutenant Dave Kenzorski called me back and agreed to answer some of my questions. This is Saginaw John Doe's story as I know it. On October 8, 1988, 
the Saginaw Police Department was contacted by a resident of an apartment house located in the 400 block of Carroll Street. According to Lieutenant Kenzorski, the resident noticed that one of the apartment doors was ajar. After taking a look inside and seeing what appeared to be a deceased person, the resident called the police. When the police arrived, they discovered the body of a 16- to 20-year-old African-American male with a shotgun wound to his face. Despite the wound, the deceased was still recognizable. This young man had brown eyes, a thin mustache, and black hair. His hair was cut tight on the sides and faded into a raised strip on the top of his head. Some have described this hairstyle as a mohawk. I would say it was a high-top fade. According to Wikipedia, this style was a trend that symbolized the golden age of hip-hop and urban contemporary music during the 1980s and the early 1990s. It was common among young black men between 1986 and 1992 and is currently a widely popular style with males of all races. Not only did Saginaw John Doe's hair reflect the style of the times, but so did his clothes. He was wearing black denim jeans, a lime or greenish-yellow short-sleeved t-shirt, and low-top white Nike Air tennis shoes with blue and white laces and two gold chains around his neck. Unfortunately, pictures of these items are not available in His Name is Foul. Therefore, we don't know the brand names or the size of the clothing he was wearing. However, we do know that he was approximately 5 foot 7 inches tall and weighed between 160 and 170 pounds. Lieutenant Kinzorski confirmed that Saginaw John Doe's DNA had been submitted to NamUs, but it doesn't look like he has ever been compared to a missing person. The press release mentions that this John Doe has a few birthmarks on his abdomen and small keloid scars over both knees and on his right shoulder. According to Harvard Medical School, keloids are raised overgrowths of scar tissue that occur at the site of a skin injury. They occur where trauma, surgery, blisters, vaccinations, acne, or body piercings have injured the skin. They are most commonly seen on the shoulders, upper back, and chest, but they can occur anywhere. Keloids are more common in African Americans, and I have also read that keloids can be genetically passed down from generation to generation. I find this interesting because it could be helpful in identifying a family member. When Saginaw John Doe was found, he did not have an ID, and therefore investigators could not immediately identify him. When I asked Lieutenant Konzorski what he thought the motive for this murder may have been, he said robbery. This surprised me for two reasons. One, because Saginaw John Doe's gold chains were not taken— and two, because I had researched crime in Saginaw and learned that drugs and gangs were a problem there in the 1980s. But I have no doubt that the police know far more than I do, and the robbery motive does seem to explain why he did not have a wallet or an ID on him. As the investigation proceeded, detectives interviewed witnesses, but the information they received was inconsistent at best. 
Lieutenant Konzorski explained that according to witness statements, this John Doe had only recently arrived in Saginaw and had been crashing at the apartment house for about a week. The witnesses they interviewed believed that he had come from Detroit. Some said that he had attended Cooley High School, while others said he told them Martin Luther King High School and Henry Ford High School. These three schools are a part of the Detroit public school system. The schools were contacted, but they were unable to match this John Doe with any of their students. It is worth noting that Saginaw is located just off of I-75, about 103 miles north of Detroit. Over the years, investigators have revisited this case and have continued to review missing persons files, but sadly, they have come up empty. I was sure that if I used the names and locations that Lieutenant Konzorski shared with me, I would be able to find something that could lead to a possible match. But I quickly realized that this was not going to be an easy task. I tried Robert, John, and Kevin with a possible last name of Yancey, spelled two ways, or could Yancey have been his first name or maybe his middle name? I spent hours mixing and matching and plugging these combinations into genealogical databases, looking at yearbook photos, newspapers, birth and marriage certificates, and obituaries. Unfortunately, what I was able to find raised more questions than answers. Although authorities have never been able to identify Saginaw John Doe, they have identified a person of interest, but unfortunately, they have not been able to gather enough evidence to arrest this suspect. Lieutenant Konzorski strongly believes that there are people who have been interviewed in this case who have the knowledge to help solve it, saying, quote, There are individuals who have the information. They know who he is and the identity of his killer. They possess the knowledge, and it's sad that they choose not to share it, unquote. As we all know, witness accounts are often tainted by the fear of incrimination and retaliation. With that said, it is very possible that Saginaw John Doe is not from the Detroit area. If you live anywhere in the U.S. or Canada— and you know someone who went missing in 1988 and fits this John Doe's description, please contact the Saginaw Police Department at 989-759-1235. Saginaw John Doe and his family need our help. 34 years of not knowing is far too long. He was someone's son, possibly someone's brother and cousin, and someone's friend. He was a teenager with hopes and dreams when his life was snuffed out by a shotgun blast. And the person who did this has never had to face the consequences. With your help, we can give this young man back his name, provide answers to his family, and bring his killer one step closer to justice. The total cost of the DNA profiling and genealogical research for this case is $5,000. In order to reach this goal, we need to raise another $3,900. True Crime PI listeners, my birthday is this week. 
the best birthday gift I could receive would be to see Saginaw John Doe's account move closer to being fully funded. If you are interested in helping to crowdfund this case, please visit www.dnasolves.com and click on Saginaw John Doe. Every little bit helps. If you can't donate but would still like to help, I have created a shareable post with a link to Saginaw John Doe's DNAsolves.com page. You can find it on our True Crime PI Facebook and Instagram pages. Please take a moment to share this post with your friends and followers. Together, we can help find the missing, give the unidentified back their names, and provide answers to the families who have been forced to carry the unbearable burden of not knowing. As I was editing this episode, I received news that two more does have been identified through DNA profiling and genetic genealogical research, and one of the identifications has led to a suspect being charged with criminal homicide. These two young women were brutally murdered. Their cases were cold with little hope of ever being solved. Today, they became the perfect example of why identifying the unidentified is so important. In 2009, when I began researching the missing and unidentified, Carbon County Jane Doe, or Beth Doe as she has been called by some, was the first case I dove into. Beth Doe and her nearly full-term baby girl were found on December 20th, 1976. They had been dismembered, stuffed into three suitcases, and thrown over the side of a bridge in Carbon County, Pennsylvania. Carbon County Jane Doe remained unidentified for 44 years until forensic DNA testing was performed, and she was identified as 15-year-old Evelyn Collin from Jersey City, New Jersey. The Pennsylvania State Police reported that once she was identified, numerous interviews and investigational processes were conducted, which led police to a suspect. On March 31, 2021, one count of criminal homicide was filed against 63-year-old Luis Sierra. Sierra is in custody and awaiting extradition from Ozone, New York. Finally, justice will be served. The second case was crowdfunded on dnasolves.com, profiled and researched by Othram in conjunction with Lieutenant Michael Hall at the McDonald County Sheriff's Office and a number of others who contributed their expertise to this case. Grace Doe was discovered in December of 1990 by a couple walking on a rural road in McDonald County, Missouri. This Doe's skeletal remains were found in some weeds near an abandoned farmhouse. She had been hogtied with six different types of bindings, including nylon and lead ropes, coaxial and telephone cables, clothesline and parachute cord. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. For 30 years, she remained McDonald County's only unidentified persons case. In January 2021, Otherm provided the McDonald County Sheriff's Office with candidate relatives. 
Danielle Pixler was identified as one of those relatives. When Danielle was contacted, she stated that she had a half-sister named Shauna Garber, who had been in foster care in Garnet, Kansas. Danielle wasn't sure what happened to Shauna after she left foster care, but she had been searching for Shauna for 28 years. DNA tests confirmed that Grace Doe is Shauna Garber, Danielle's half-sister. Without the funds that were raised on dnasolves.com, this young woman may have never gotten her name back, and her family would still be searching and wondering where she is and what happened to her. Season 2 of True Crime P.I. is coming soon. Follow our True Crime P.I. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for updates. And to be sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, like our True Crime P.I. Facebook page, and join our Facebook group to discuss and crowdsource the cases featured in each episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it. If you don't, we would love to hear your suggestions. Thank you for listening. True Crime P.I. is written and edited by Dana Pohl. Theme music, CD Streets, and Come Out and Play, written and performed by the very talented Darren Curtis at darrencurtismusic.com.